Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shivaglani. At-home COVID testing has become ubiquitous, but if you're using one for travel, you might not realize the CDC requires the test to be performed during a telehealth session with a certified technician supervising in real time. One of the leading companies providing the service is eMed, and its chief science officer, Dr. Michael Mina, is with us today to explain how it all works and what's ahead for this type of digital healthcare. Before joining eMed, Dr. Mina was an associate professor of epidemiology, immunology, and infectious disease at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, as well as a physician at Harvard Medical School. I also want to note that eMed's co-founder and CEO, Dr. Patrice Harris, was one of the first guests on RaiseLine almost two years ago when she was serving as president of the American Medical Association. So, Dr. Mina, thanks for taking the time to be with us today. Oh, thanks so much. I'm happy to be here. So you've worn a lot of hats in your fairly young career. I'm curious, what first got you interested in medicine and also public health? Oh, well, that's a, a winding story, I suppose. But uh, in brief, I was an engineer at Dartmouth, and I ultimately left Dartmouth and went and became a Buddhist monk in Sri Lanka. And this was 2004. While I was a monk, uh, the tsunami hit, the Indian Ocean tsunami, and, and uh, that was Christmas Day, essentially, in 2004. And then I moved to a refugee camp after, afterwards, I left being a monk, moved to a refugee camp on the coast there, uh, where I was trying to help out. Uh, I lived there for about six months. And it's really that, uh, I think it was that experience in the camp kind of took me a little bit away from engineering for a bit, got me more into public health and medicine. But ultimately what I've done is I've kind of come around full circle. And now I incorporate a lot of engineering into my public health thinking and into my medical thinking, which is in pathology. So, but it was a lot of young experiences being in Sri Lanka. And then I worked in Nicaragua for a number of years, developing a nonprofit there that was teaching communities how to take table salt and solar power to produce chlorine for their water so that they could purify their water out in the field and in very rural Nicaragua. And so that was just kind of a lot of these different interactions in under-resourced settings led me to combine public health, engineering, and medicine all together. Well, that's fascinating. And I think you may be the first of our 250 guests who also is a Buddhist monk. Um, and so actually, before we go into more of the questions around what you do today at EMED, if you don't mind, we'd love to learn more about kind of that whole story and part of your life. Like what inspires you to go to Sri Lanka and become a Buddhist monk? And then are there any things from that time of your life that you still incorporate in your day-to-day practice as a physician or at EMED? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I was very interested in Buddhism when I entered college, and I was interested in the philosophical side of Buddhism more than the religious side. And um, and so that actually is what brought me to Sri Lanka in particular. It's a type of Buddhism called Theravadan Buddhism, which is much more focused on the philosophy of it and not so much on Buddhism as a religion. And uh, to me, I was really, you know, it was about trying to understand, you know, are there other aspects of our mind, of our sort of psychology that we don't tap into and uh, ways that we communicate with the world that, you know, we don't really give ourselves time and space to do in, in this culture. Um, and what I found was, you know, meditation to the extent that I was doing it at the time, which you know, ultimately was somewhere around 15 hours a day. Um, you know, it definitely changes your view on certain things. It changes. I, I, I truly believe it kind of rewires parts of your brain um, and some of those I don't think can be undone, uh, but it was really the just understanding, was there something to 
found inside that I wasn't necessarily privy to, you know, as an engineering student, if you will. <laughs> so it's a very interesting experience. I didn't go there intending to become a monk. I went there intending to just have an experience in a Buddhist country to learn a bit about Buddhist culture uh, and also to shadow at some medical clinics. Turned out the medical clinics and long story, but I ultimately started meditating with the monks that I was um, spending a lot of time with. And um, as I was getting ready to pack up to come back to the US, I just decided it wasn't ready to, to return back. And, and so I, I moved up to a temple in the mountains and just started meditating there more and more. And ultimately I decided, hey, this is something that seemed right at the time. And, uh, and so I chose to ordain as a monk. Um, who knows, maybe if the tsunami hadn't happened, I would still be a monk. I, I honestly don't know. Wow, that is incredible. And so you mentioned, you know, peak, you were meditating about 15 hours a day. Today, are you still maintaining a meditative practice? Are you still Buddhist? Do you consider yourself in that regard? I mean, I, I retain a lot of that thinking to a certain extent. But to be honest, you know, it was a very difficult transition back into the United States. It was really the tsunami that kind of tore me away from being a monk and tore me away from meditation. And that took a really long time to get over the trauma from being in Sri Lanka after that tsunami hit and living in the refugee camp. And it kind of uh, set me up to stop meditating for quite a long time. The most I meditate at this point is really when I, I use it as a tool. If I need to sort of bring my respiratory rate down very quickly, I can lean on some of the very physiological aspects of it, but I don't continue a meditation practice today. We could spend the whole podcast talking about not just this topic, but also your experiences in Sri Lanka, right after the disaster, which I remember I was a college sophomore. That was that Christmas, as you mentioned, and so traumatizing, and you were there on the ground. Um, so disaster medicine is something you have experience with. And uh, so the pandemic, I'm sure, feels, you know, probably there's some similarities with regards to the resourcing. And so I do want to make sure we cover your current work. And so can you tell us a bit more about EMED and the COVID testing? What got you into EMED as a whole? I assume you're leaving HMS as we're talking, you're about to move from Boston down to Miami where EMED's based. So that's right. I actually left Harvard School of Public Health and the medical school back in November to join EMED. And um, really since the beginning of this pandemic, testing kind of became a thing that I was focused on primarily because there weren't many people who are both infectious disease epidemiologists, uh, and I'm also primarily an immunologist, and I like to fuse immunology and epidemiology together. That's my PhD hat. My medical hat is molecular virology diagnostics and clinical pathology. And what I recognized very early on, like early January of 2020, was that there were not going to be many people who really studied sort of uh, epidemic spread and, and um, pandemic response who also were clinical pathologists or understood testing. And a lot of the epidemiologists didn't necessarily understand testing, so they weren't going to wade into that space. Like epidemiologists generally tend to discuss vaccines quite a bit because that's kind of part of what epidemiologists in infectious disease space often study. But testing is kind of like this ugly stepchild that nobody was really focused on. And then, of course, we have the pathologists who are normally in charge of testing, but they're very far from epidemiologists and certainly not epidemiologists who focus on pandemic response. And so there were just very, very few people who lived in this space. Um, and so early on, I started, you know, at the time I was at the Brigham Women's Hospital at Harvard, and I was trying to get resources in early January of 2020 to develop a COVID test. 
And everyone, I mean, the hospital leadership practically laughed at me and said, you know, why would we need that? That's not a thing that, you know, that's across the world. It's not impacting Boston. I begged and pleaded um, practically to get resources to build the test because it was very obvious, you know, by the first week of January, I think it was, we had seen the virus had spread to every province in China. And you don't have a virus spread to every province in China if it's not going to become a global pandemic. Um, so eventually I got the resources, but even starting to develop the COVID test at, at the Brigham, I realized very quickly it wasn't going to be enough. So I moved to the Broad Institute, which is a large biological research institute at MIT and Harvard. And we created a, a very large testing program there, which has served you know, much of the Eastern seaboard, I would say, during the pandemic in terms of PCR testing. But even with that, you know, that was a, a massive effort. We got that started. We became the state laboratory testing site. And then we became a, a massive resource for, for many places to keep a lot of universities open throughout the pandemic and serve as a PCR testing site. But even with that massive effort, it was clear to me that that wasn't the type of testing that was really going to help us significantly as a populace. And so I started turning my attention to these rapid antigen tests. And the, the basic premise was all born out of you know, simple mathematics and understanding how the virus grows inside of a body. Uh, which was that you don't need a really sensitive test. You just need a fast test if you're trying to control a pandemic or stop spread. And so that got me very engaged early on with trying to promote the use of rapid antigen tests as a public health tool. And I kind of didn't stop doing that uh, ever since. Uh, I've worked very hard to change policy in the country to get both administrations, the presidency to you know, try to push on rapid antigen testing as a tool. And the Trump administration was really working with people like Brett Drouard to get the Binex Now test out. And then under the Biden administration, it's been to sort of push on the administration a bit to develop these big programs, which we now see in, in the form of sort of rapid tests being sent out in the U.S. Postal Service. But in all of that, EMED kind of popped up. And actually, I didn't fully understand what EMED was. Uh, and I was talking about EMED and social media or something and saying, you know, why are their prices higher than the than manufacturer prices for the test? I, I didn't realize, but they, they had to set me straight. This is before I was at EMED, that EMED is actually a, an amazing platform. It's essentially a service provider. It's bringing all the benefits of a point of care test with reporting, with verified CLIA laboratory reports, bringing it into somebody's home. So it's not a test maker. At EMED, we're essentially a we authenticate and guide people through the process of using a test, but ultimately we, we transform these rapid at-home tests into tests that can actually be useful. For example, we're creating tests to treat now. So somebody can use a rapid test at home. They can be guided through that test using eMed, and if positive, be brought directly to telemedicine through eMed telemedicine physicians and get a treatment you know, which is a big void right now because people are getting rapid antigen tests, but they can't get treated based on them. And so it's really a platform on which many of these rapid antigen tests can be utilized, which I view as sort of just a natural progression of everything that I've been talking about for the last two years is to, to really say, how can we better approach this pandemic through testing? And this is really me transitioning from writing papers as an academic about this to actually, you know, really trying to build systems that will fully help people. Well, that's a fascinating journey. I mean, you've basically captured over two and a half years at work uh, dating from even before COVID arrived fully in the U.S. in March 2020. Obviously, it was probably there as much before, but it became really part of our public consciousness here in the U.S., I think in March. 
Um, it's been quite a two, two and a half years uh, since then. Um, now, you know, with EMED, I, I like the couple of themes you've touched upon that I think are really important for our audience who are either current or future practitioners of healthcare. Uh, we've talked about this in Ray's line, both the rise of telehealth, uh, consumer-driven healthcare, value-based medicine, and the fact that just because you build a test or you make a treatment doesn't necessarily mean you solve that last mile problem of, you know, yeah, sure, you're positive with COVID. What do you do now? Or or if you get a test sent or buy one from Walgreens or wherever, are you using it appropriately? Do you even know how to use it? Because there's a huge health literacy problem, as we know here. So what are some of the things you and the team at EMAN are building or working out that make it different from a telehealth perspective? Uh, is it mostly kind of guiding it post a test result? Or is there like a specific type of clinician you're hiring, um, other services, follow-up? Like, can you walk us through what makes EMAN special from that regard? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, the biggest thing is there is a differentiator. There's telehealth and telemedicine where, you know, most of the people who you'll interact with are either physicians, NPs, you know, they're true bona fide health professionals. That means that's very expensive to scale and it generally doesn't scale. It can, it can scale a bit, but ultimately telehealth, it needs to be scheduled and it's going to be pricey. What EMED is doing, EMED said, well, how can we best help people to create really equitable access to testing that can have follow-up? but without a lot of cost and without a lot of burden in terms of like scheduling and things like that. And so what we have is telehealth proctors. And these are essentially people who are not full health professionals, uh, but they are trained in very specific tasks, like how to help somebody use a test, how to help somebody interpret it, how to ensure that we're keeping chain of custody over that test, that we can actually give a CLIA laboratory report, report to all 50 public state health departments based on a home-based test, and then also give positives an opportunity for treatment or negatives an opportunity to travel and with a verified test they use at home. And so the important piece here, I think, is the scalability because we're not focused uh, in order to keep costs down for the user and to keep it all sort of accessible and equitable, uh, but also to make sure that it's easy and scalable. People can log on at you know 24-7. You don't have to have any sort of appointment, you can just scan the QR code on the test or just log, log on to emed.com. There's a few different ways. And, and a proctor pops up and walks you through the test. And now we've linked that to telehealth and we were able to link that um, because of certain aspects of the business, we're able to do that essentially for free to, to do the linking to telehealth for positive people um, and get them medicine. And so the differentiator is kind of the funnel that we bring people through. We don't use really high paid people just to do the things that you don't need very highly educated health professionals to do. You just need people who are really targeted in their training and can guide you through these simple steps to create a point of care test into a digital point of care test. And then because there's sort of this, this funnel here where we can guide people through those who are positive, then we can kind of use use that as a jumping off point to bring people through this telemedicine consult and get treatment. And I think that if we were to be purely a telemedicine company, the service would be much more cumbersome. You'd have to wait a day to um, get your appointment. You know, that it would be a much more complex thing for the user. And we've just tried to streamline it. And this really started with Dr. Patrice Harris, who you mentioned, she was the president of the AMA when COVID started and her whole goal what this company was to create an equitable approach so that people could get testing that has follow-up associated with it 
And so she focused on, you know, how does it work? How can we best keep costs down and really start bringing medical care costs down, but make a product that that really does work to to sort of bring the power of medicine into people's home? I think there's a difference there for than just telemedicine. We're almost a a utility in some ways that telemedicine could almost lean on. Clearly, the you know two of the top ten fastest growing professions in the U.S. are physician associate or physician assistant and nurse practitioner, largely because of the same reasons uh, of division of labor and having these so-called physician extenders. And you just keep taking that down to that scale that could ultimately go to the, the family caregiver being the the extender as long as you coordinate the care, obviously, between these different parties. Exactly. And what we found is um, there's a place for real bona fide health professionals, and then there's a place for people who are very targeted in their expertise. And ultimately, what we found is it's all better than, um, especially for these tests and different procedures that we can do through the EMED platform, it's all better than leaving somebody totally on their own to try to make sense of what to do with a bunch of tubes and very difficult to read instructions for use that are in the box. And so what we found is having that certified health proctor there to walk people through the process, not only gives them actionable sort of results that they can then use to get treatment and or travel or test to stay and such, but it also is very important for a lot of people who are very uncomfortable using a test on their own. As physicians, we generally take the stuff for granted, makes sense to us, but there's a lot of people who don't know if they can trust the result because they don't know that they trust themselves to have done the test appropriately. And that's where we find that even just these gentle guides make a major difference for people. Five years from now, what do you think EMED would be doing? Is it going to be like Everlywell, which has become very popular and, you know, do all sorts of at-home testing and proctoring? Yeah. So I think we're going to move. I mean, I was hired to kind of help bring the company as a chief science officer to, to infuse the company with sort of new ideas, what directions to go. So on the one hand, we'll keep like our core business model, I think is one that's really going to drive prices down in, in the medical care space. Um, I think we will we'll keep expanding the test menu that we offer. Of course, right now it's rapid antigen tests, but we're not a test manufacturer. So that allows us to really keep looking around and saying, you know, where do people need help? Where do people need guidance? Where do people need follow-up based on something they do at home? There's obviously going to be COVID and flu. There's going to be RSV. You know, one of the things I'm most excited about is uh, a lot of the, the molecular tests, these manufacturers like Q and Detect and Lucera, these are really amazing molecular devices that are going to be sitting in people's homes now. And can we take a, a rapid molecular device that's sitting in somebody's home and get a strep test? And, and you know, I would like to see a situation where no parent has to spend half a day bringing their kid to the pediatrician just to get a strep test to get treatment when they could do the whole thing at home and have the treatment land on their doorstep based on the the EMED test to treat pipeline. We're going to be expanding the different tests. And my goal there is to really simplify people's life when it comes to medicine. I think COVID got me very engaged with this idea that we don't need physicians in the middle of every, you know, physically in the middle of every step that we need to take. People should have a right to know about their own body on their own terms and get treatment with gentle guidance from physicians, but they don't necessarily have to go to an office to do it. That just adds a barrier. Uh, And then the other big thing is uh, we'll be really getting into clinical research and clinical trials. We've already been talking with NIH and CDC because our platform of these proctors really opens up a whole new avenue for um, distributed clinical studies both research and clinical trials with companies uh, to 
be able to have a platform where if somebody wants to to test something in people's homes, you know, th that we actually have proctors who can walk people through fairly uh, complex sampling procedures or rapid test procedures and data acquisition without having to have very expensive clinical trials. We can bring the cost uh, down and scale up accessibility to clinical trials so that the access to it isn't only limited to the coasts where all the universities are, but can really open up to, to people all over the place. Those are the two major lines that I really want to bring you met in. Those are fascinating and something I think all of our audience should be aware of. I mean, certainly making clinical trials more equitable, diverse, having a wider range of subjects, which obviously EMED would, with the vision you spell out could, could help with that. And there's parallels to just normal public health interventions. I'm sure you know the partners in health folks, you know, John Kim and Paul Farmer and the director observed therapy for tuberculosis medicines. And so similarly having a health proctor uh, be able to observe people and make sure the quality of the data being collected is accurate, makes a lot of sense. And, uh, and the follow-up is there. And the second piece or the first piece you mentioned, uh, I've always liked to compare it to like Martin Luther uh, and the 95 theses of, you know, do you need a priest to talk to God in Catholicism or can you, you know, communicate directly to God in Protestantism and the birth of Lutheranism, I guess. Similarly, I think getting people more engaged in their own health and having all these extenders can at a minimum make medicine more equitable at a maximum save cost and hopefully make us require less sick care and, and, and go towards that preventative health care that we all are striving for. So both of those are very resonant. Uh, thanks for laying those out. It's a really good point about empowering people to participate in their own health care. You know, and it's, it's the same both in healthcare and also public health. One of the major things that I have said over the last two years, besides the fact that, you know, tests need to be fast and accessible and to be useful in this pandemic is that we need to empower individuals to not only take control of their own health and well-being for themselves, but also if in the midst of a pandemic, we have to empower people to be able to take control of their little slice of this pandemic, a public health uh, emergency is not ever going to be solved by people working individually uh, in different directions. We, you know, or fighting against systems. We need people to feel empowered to participate in public health, and that's something that, you know, I think putting tests into people's homes, making them useful, allowing them to have the tools for themselves to be able to know on their own terms if they're positive, if they're infectious. Uh, is just an amazingly important component to fighting this pandemic. And, um, you know, one of my goals has been to break down this massive wall that often exists where physicians are the gatekeepers of people knowing about themselves in terms of their biology. I think it's important to have physicians there to help people understand their own biology and understand what these test results mean. But there's also a time when people should be able to, to know if they're positive on their own terms. And during a pandemic, you know, there's no better time ever really than to give people the ability to know for themselves without a physician's input that they're infectious. People generally know how to interpret that at this point. And these rapid tests, for example, are, they encapsulate so much of this to me. It's that, you know, give people the opportunity to know their status and they'll act appropriately. And we saw the same thing with HIV you know, know your status was a big campaign that worked, um, helped people not spread the virus. That's awesome. I, yeah, definitely. Um, we had Eric Topol on the podcast a couple of months ago and he wrote that great book, The Patient Will See You Now, right? So again, shifting the balance of power back to the patient wherever possible. Um, you know, given your role as an epidemiologist, physician, you know, 
not asking you to prognosticate too much, but where do you think this pandemic is going to arrive within a year or five years? Is it going to be like more like the flu or what are, you, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's, um, it's a great question. I think, you know, this virus has thus far, in my view, been a completely textbook virus. Um, there's been very, very few things that have been surprising about it. And um, that might be surprising for some people to hear. But the important thing is to just think about how we how we view this virus um, and, and how we view our response to the virus. Uh, I think that one thing that's been so confusing is that we've had a lot of physicians weigh in and others, you know, not just physicians, but also, you know, epidemiologists and others who, who have been thinking about this virus in the context of how we normally have seen people respond to viruses, for example. But what I think we need to do is ask the question, not how does an adult respond to the virus and how do we kind of make sense of what's happening? But it, the moment we kind of take a step back and we ask the question, if we assume that all adults, for example, are pretty much babies, from the point of view of this virus, then our immune system, we should expect that we're going to respond with a naive immune response. You know, and the virus is going, is also a baby virus. So the fact that it's been mutating so much isn't, it's not surprising to me uh, because it didn't jump into humans in its most optimal form, but yet we're used to looking at viruses as they mutate. Um, we look at their rates of mutation based on viruses that have generally hit equilibrium with humans, you know, that have already been around the block. Um, and so in both of these, we have extraordinarily naive responses, immune responses. And that's why, to me, the immune responses we've seen to the vaccine and to the infections has been totally textbook. We've seen waning antibodies and waning responses. And that's exactly what happens to babies the first time they see a pathogen. And um, the important thing here is given that knowledge, given that like we're all essentially responding to this virus as though we're babies, we can look to babies and say, well, how do they grow out of these risk periods in their life? Like why, when the kid hits five years old, are they no longer at high risk for infectious diseases and, or at least the severe outcomes of them. And that's because they spend their first five years building up an immunological repertoire through getting exposed. Previously, before COVID, I was really working on these tools, these immunological tools that allow us to profile somebody's complete antibody repertoire and just like a drop of blood. So the drop of blood, I could measure hundreds of thousands of different antibodies in you and tell you everything you've seen. And when we do that on babies, we see that babies actually get exposed to coronaviruses multiple times just in the first three or four months of life. So that suggests that most adults, by the time they're adults, you've seen these viruses you know, hundreds or thousands of times, which is why they don't impact us anymore. So the good thing is, what this all tells me is that the virus is going to optimize itself. It's going to keep, you know, it's going to keep mutating for a while, but eventually it's going to find an equilibrium. It's going to get optimized to a point where it doesn't have to make these massive changes anymore. Will it happen this year, next year, two years? It's hard to say exactly when it will really settle out. But the important thing is we're building our immune repertoire, just like babies do. And babies take a few years to do that. And adults also, we're, we're getting exposed to this virus. We're getting vaccinated. And what that means is the virus is going to keep persisting in our population. It's never going away. It will stay with us. But the important thing is the importance that it has to our society is going to become less and less and less and less as we build up this cushion of immunity. And so I see this as, you know, we're on the off-ramp of this virus. Um, we're going to, it's going to be bumpy still. There's no doubt. There will probably still be waves that happen in the late summer and then in the winter again this year. 
Uh, but ultimately, each of those, the blowback from those or the, the, the real problems associated with those waves of transmission are going to keep getting lower and lower and lower because we build up this heterologous immune response. And we all will just you know, naturally develop protection, assuming we get vaccinated and assuming we survive through each of the infections. Uh, those each come with an added layer of, of immune protection for our future selves. And that's kind of the direction that I think it's the only off-ramp we have from this pandemic. It's not going extinct. And so, but we can rely on our immune systems to do what it's always done and what it does for us as babies, which is set our future selves up for protection. I'm aware of the time. So my last question for you, one that's particularly of interest to our audience is you've had a very interesting career. We talked about it at the beginning, Buddhist monk, engineer turned epidemiologist, virologist, and now digital health chief science officer. What uh, advice would you have to someone, say, who was just graduating Dartmouth like you did, so someone at the very beginning of their career looking at healthcare as an option or already in med school or whatnot, what advice would you give them about meeting the challenges of COVID and beyond? Yeah, I think as people are trying to choose their careers, um, you know, one of the things that I always like to bring up is, at least when I advise undergraduates, I hear a lot, should I go to med school or should I do a PhD? You know, and that's like a big decision point in terms of how somebody's going to act in the future in terms of like where their profession is going to take them uh, or where their education is going to take them. And, you know, one of the things I want to point out to listeners, if there are undergraduates who listen to this, you know, it's a PhD and an MD in many ways can't be more different. We kind of lump them together as, you know, when we teach undergraduates, they kind of seem like they'd be the same. But one is super creative and you thrive in the PhD world if you're trying to plow whole new fields that nobody's ever thought about and you're taking risks. And in the medical world, it's kind of the opposite. Like, yeah, if you get into clinical trials, you can do a little bit of that, but you can't experiment on your patients. It's a very guideline-driven discipline now. And, uh, and so I think the first part is for individuals who are thinking about their future career to first like reflect on what parts of their brain they like to use more. And is it a really creative part of their brain that they like to break new ground and, you know, explore new things that somebody's never asked that question before? Uh, or is it that you like to use the part of your brain that's like really kind of sticking to guidance and sticking to knowledge that's already been learned, but trying to, you know, embrace that knowledge and use it to better your patients. And I think that that's simplifying things, of course, but, but I look at them as very different and each of them really, they lead you in different paths. You know, if you're getting into public health, you're getting into like trying to make the world a better place through medicine and healthcare, they're going to bring you in very different directions. And for me, I've tried hard to bridge them. I certainly use my PhD side of me quite a bit more than my medical side. I don't see patients, but what I would say is no matter the path you go, if you want to be in healthcare, it's so crucial to have a vocabulary that crosses those disciplines. If you're in the PhD world and you're an epidemiologist, take some courses in the med school and learn some biology. Uh, if you're a physician, try to take some courses and, and learn about how to deal with data and mathematics. You know, it doesn't have to be heavy, but just the smallest amount becomes almost like a superpower when you bring it back to your core discipline. And I think the reason I'm harping on that a little bit, it might seem irrelevant to the question, is that I think what has been one of the, the most problematic aspects of our response in this pandemic has been that we have not had holistic levels of thinking. We've had a lot of people stay, you know, really be very focused on one point and miss 80 other things and, you know, say, no, no, this is how it is. Or I saw with rapid tests, you know, physicians were some of the most 
outspoken people against the use of rapid antigen tests, but that was looking at it purely through a medical lens where you don't have to worry about population metrics. You worry about the sample that's in front of you, but that doesn't include thinking about access to, to tests and speed of tests. And I've just seen that across the board here where we haven't had enough sort of cross-disciplinary understanding of this pandemic. And I really encourage anyone who wants to get into, especially the public health sphere, to really have that cross-disciplinary understanding and, or at least strive to recruit the right people around you that if you're a leader uh, and a policy leader, to make sure that you're getting you know, information from expertise on, on all different sides. And sometimes they conflict. You know, Medicine and our response to this pandemic alone is conflicting. If we look at public health tools, I don't know if a single physician who has ever prescribed isolation to somebody and, you know, isolation is antithetical to medicine, but we understand that for public health, it's needed. And so there are sometimes when they conflict and it doesn't mean one's wrong and one's right, uh, but it does require to understand the purpose of isolation. You can't just use a physician's eye. You have to understand why you're doing it for public health. And while it's evident and obvious for isolation, that same issue has arisen many, many times, and it's mostly been hit with people trying to stop that public health option um, because of not necessarily seeing the medical benefit, you know, seeing only seeing the gaps where it would be in medicine, but not seeing the public health benefit, I should say, and, and vice versa. That's great advice. And it's good to have expertise in something. And certainly medicine is a career where many people have to subspecialize and subspecialize and subspecialize. But having that range is essential to then be able to communicate and understand other people's perspectives. To bring it back, one final aphorism, probably Buddhist philosophy, maybe Hindu philosophy, is the five blind men and the elephant. Maybe you know that story. If you know it's an elephant, you have five blind men around it. You ask each of the blind men what they're touching. One says a spear because they're touching the tusk. One says a rope because they're touching the tail. One says a tree touching the, the leg of the elephant. They're all kind of right, but they're all also very wrong because they don't see the whole picture, as you were saying. So just bring it back to where we started from. Exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dr. Mina, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. And more importantly, for the work that you've done over the past several years and your entire career from the disaster in Sri Lanka to now the pandemic and the work at EMED. I really appreciate you taking the time and raising the line. Well, thanks so much. I, I appreciate having me on. And with that, I'm Shivivani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise line. We're all in this together. Take care. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. <laughs>